1: I can't even talk about puffins because I just adore them too much to an obsessive level where I want to live with puffins in a hole in the ground. Hello, greetings, salutations. It's Will Young from the Wellbeing Lab. Do you have an image of me in some sort of lab coat? Petri dishes everywhere? Possibly, that's me when I'm cooking. We've got a good show. We've got workplace relationships and rumination. We have Thomas Erickson. He is a lecturer, management consultant, and the author of Surrounded by Idiots. Does he spend time with me? We talk about feedback in the workplace where nobody wants to receive it, nobody wants to give it. We talk about how to deal with difficult workplace relationships and how to ask for a raise. That's a really tricky one. When we started off, he told me how he came to be an expert in the field oh
2: there's always a story you know and my story is, is uh, more of the painful ones i was a young manager myself i got my first managing position at the age of 24 i i was a super salesman and so i sold myself to them and i said i'm really good at this it'll you know, take me take me which they for some reason did bad bad decision they shouldn't have done that because uh, i messed things up badly i did really 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 bad everything my staff came to me and said i, I say, said, well fix it I said, well how about this well fix it well how about that well fix it and uh, after a year or so i went to my boss's boss two levels up and said you have to take me out of this equation because i don't know what i'm doing this is, doesn't work and he said you better stay put on it because your boss is even worse he's not even here he said it's actually a true story and then it wasn't funny now i can laugh at it a bit i guess and then afterwards uh, let's say i i think i kept it up for a little bit more than a year and then i finally could could leave not in not in defeat but certainly not in victory and um, the hr department contacted me and said how about doing this personality assessment what do you say would you like to learn something about yourself? And I said, absolutely. I'm willing to learn, of course. And I took this, uh, well, let's say behavioral test, let's call it. And they gave me a piece of paper and said, there you, are, there you are. And I said, this, this is unbelievable. This is really me. Is this what people see when they meet me? And they say, oh, yes, it is. It wasn't an aha moment. It was more of an oh, no moment. And I said, this is terrible. And they said, now you know what they have been struggling with for a year and a half. And I realized I had been using some bad behaviors. My personality wasn't as, uh, let's say, perfect as I thought as a 24 year old young man. <laughs> Funny, you know, you never you never think of these things when you're you're really really young. But then I learned that was a starting point, investigating myself and trying to figure out why am I behaving like I am and how do they perceive me when I present myself to them and to the world. And that was actually it's been a bumpy right I would say, but very, very beneficial. I am not the same person,
1: definitely not. And what kind of things came up when you read that bit of paper?
2: Oh I was uh, I was definitely a proper know-it-all to begin with. That was just one of the things there was so many details. I talked too much, I was a really poor listener. I interrupted people. I, I still do all of these things, but not so much anymore, not so frequent anymore. but I, I really I didn't consider people, having different ideas or different mindsets than I had. I mean, it it sounds really silly when you say it, but just imagine being, uh, I don't know, 25 years of age without having thought before, uh, doesn't everybody think like I do? It sounds really, I I know what it sounds like, but but that was actually the case.
1: You know what, it actually doesn't sound silly to me because I think... We're not perfect, are we? And unless people tell us or allow us to see our behaviors in the way we are, and we don't get that feedback, how are we gonna know? Because not everyone is born like beautifully self-aware and you know.
2: In general, people aren't as self-aware as they might imagine. I mean, we all have, of course, I still carry around weird features in my personal life that I'm not aware of. My self-awareness now is extremely high because I have done nothing. But uh, watch myself in the mirror for, 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 I would say, 30 years now. And I ask for feedback all the time. I ask for feedback from colleagues, from partners, from clients, from my wife. Ouch. She never be about the bush about that. She's kind of honest. That's a good thing, I think. But you, the problem with, with feedback is it's only two problems with feedback. Nobody wants to have it. Nobody wants to give it. If you could only solve that kind of conundrum.
1: That's fascinating to me. So let's go in on that. Why do people not want to have it and why do people not want to give it, do you think?
2: Well, to start with, uh, people don't want to have the feedback unless it's, it's positive. And some people don't even want the positive feedback. If your manager tells you, well, you know, when you do this, it's going to affect us about that. So could you please start doing that? Uh, some people can take it. Some people can discuss it. Some people can. will see that as, as uh, you know, really harsh criticism and then we start to hate you. Some people never listen to the bad stuff because they only look for possibilities and opportunities and they, they fancy, you know, sunshine and happiness. And if you say something negative, you're a bad person. You shouldn't criticize, you know, that's bad. Nobody wants to be criticized. I don't like to be criticized either, but I have trained myself to take it because I know it's helpful from the right people. I don't take feedback from people who I wouldn't go to for advice, but uh, I understand I have many things to learn still.
1: Why do you think people find it hard to give feedback?
2: I mean, feedback is supposed to change somebody's behavior, let's say. It's supposed to adjust or fine-tune something that, for instance, doesn't work. Some people can do that in a professional way, but it's hard to do it because usually a lot of a lot of managers the higher up in the hierarchy the more common it is to say i well I'm, i'm just giving honest you know feedback and they can be perceived as kind of blunt and maybe even rude because i just told you as it is meaning what i think doesn't have to be the truth because if you should give people proper feedback you have to observe their behaviors maybe for weeks you have to make lists you have to look for certain patterns because we all can mess things up from one time or another. That's just the way it is. I mean, you do it, I do it, we all do it. So you can't sort of uh, shoot for making one mistake. You have to look for patterns. If you tell me you always behave like this, you always do this, you never do that. That's usually never truth, you know. So you have to actually pay really good attention if you're going to give feedback that actually sits well with the person and that actually makes a difference. Unless you just want to be a jerk, that's easy. Some people are it's one of the more complex skills as a leader, I would say, to give a proper feedback uh, with all of these things in the right timing. And, you know, nobody should really be listening and considering if you say things based on, on, on facts and not on emotions, you know, and don't feel too much. And, and all the follow ups you have to do, depending on who you're talking to and depending on what language they actually will listen to. There are actually quite a few factors to deal with there and most people are bad at giving proper feedback. There are naturals, but not very many.
1: I would imagine, or tell me, am I right in thinking that over the years you've probably seen fundamental problems that come up again and again in, within businesses? What kind of things would come up that create for fractured work relationships, a tough working environment,
2: with all kinds of relationships is based on some sort of trust when it comes to your partner or between two staff members or manager, employee. If you trust each other, maybe you can't achieve a miracle, but you can do much, much better. And to build that trust is is one way is to dare to speak the truth. How about doing this instead of doing that? You know, are you willing to try it? That's one way to build trust. I see you're struggling May I come with a proposal? Are you interested in talking about it? Can we have a sit down and, and, you know, discuss these things? I could also just smack you on the head and say, you're an idiot. You better do it uh, 50% faster. Otherwise, you're out. The leaders, maybe not the purpose, but the leaders, let's say, mission is to help you do a better job. My bosses should, should make me a better coworker, a better staff member. But they can't treat me as... Just a new guy who came from school yesterday. They can't treat me as a professor either. The trick is to find where am I in my own development uh, process regarding many different uh, tasks. That's also a problem because I might be real, real uh, beginner at uh, task A, but a real professional at task B. So you have to treat me in different ways depending on what's on my desk as we speak that's why so many leaders are poor leaders because there are so many things to consider when it comes to i mean it's the same thing with parenting i mean is there a harder job than to do parenting to make your kids grow up and be proper citizens and good taxpayers and, and a valuable assets to the society and best friends and you know all of these things you have to really pay attention you have to be mentally present all the time. And it's really, really exhausting.
1: So I heard you say about the importance of trust within a business. What other things will come up that maybe aren't working?
2: Well, what uh, what I come to think of, uh, just as you ask, is to not use mind reading as a tool. The more educated people are, the less likely they will admit they don't understand. Let's say you're you're a visionary entrepreneur, you know, and you say, I, I had this vision, you know, I have, we want to go, we're going to reach the moon, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, and you know, it's going to be superb and everything. And, and are you with me? Everybody says, Yeah, we're with you. That's going to be fantastic. And nobody's going to ask you, How will we get there? It's impossible because they will say, Yeah, he told us, you know, Thomas said, We're going to do this and that. And, and they sit there and try to figure out what the vision is. People usually are not as precise again as they should be. I'm, I'm, this is the first step we going in that direction and this is the next step and the third step and the fourth step and so on and so forth uh, and we're going to do it like this this is what i want to see from you i need you doing this and that and not those things forget about those things you need to be specific and you need to repeat yourself again and again and again because there are some truth in if you can wake somebody up in the middle of the night and they can actually tell you what the vision is could you give me your mission statement let's say and they can say it then you have sort of nailed it i would say I know it's a bit of a cliche, but there lies some truth in it.
1: So I really wanted to talk about the workplace because I'm self-employed. I don't often really have a boss. So, well, often when people come to me and say I'm having a problem at work, quite often it, it's not always necessarily come from bosses. It's sort of co-workers. So there isn't necessarily a hierarchy. How can people handle that? It's a big question. It's
2: a huge question. I would start with asking you, how did the conflict start? From where did it come? Some people say, it came from out of nowhere. He started screaming at me, you know, really mad. And usually it didn't. There are people with some some high-tempered people. Of course, they blow the fuses all the time. But usually there are some reasons behind that you didn't see. Did you see the, any warning signs? Have you been a poor listener for, you know, six months? And all of a sudden you stepped on somebody's toe and they just broke their patience and then everything came out, you know, you need to pay attention. It could be small things, it could be tiny things. It could be that you didn't see another conflict and you should be the mediator, but you're not because you, you, you're so full of yourself. It could be a million things. The faster you deal with whatever you see, the less conflict you need to, to work on. Because the first time you hear something or see something that you disapprove of or, or just don't understand, And you bring it up immediately. Okay. I saw you do this uh, late uh, yesterday afternoon. Uh, I have a couple of questions. Can we talk about that? Because it kind of bothers me a little bit and then you can straighten it out immediately instead of going to see that certain behavior for, you know, two years, and then you blow the fuses, you know, the the whole lid goes and and you kind of just force all your frustration over this individual. It's always better to act now. If you see something, take that person to decide, hey, you know, I, I need to talk to you about this and that. Otherwise, it's gonna be something lying there under the carpet, you know, growing, starting to get messy and start to smell. And finally, somebody will open up and say, Hey, what's underneath here? You know, it's gonna maybe ruin the whole team. I've seen those things happen because then everything comes up. Five years of frustration from 10 people. Ooh, it's that's really ugly.
1: I think that's such good wisdom, by the way, to encourage people to jump on something as quickly as possible. I think that's really very valuable. Um, Where does HR come into play within businesses? I guess I'm thinking that, to me, HR has the possibility and should be a place where there is some safety for employees and that things can be perhaps enacted through HR that can't be enacted outside it for safety reasons. That's where I would like to see my HR in my imaginary corporation.
2: Well, there's so many different ways to use an HR department. That usually depends on, well, the highest uh, ranking officer, the CEO or whatever. I mean, I, I've been working with many, many, many corporations and usually a, the, the head of HR isn't even sitting in in the top management team. That's kind of common, I would say, which gives you kind of a clue here because if they don't have any real power, then what good can they do if they actually cannot affect big issues? But usually a good HR department, they are part of the development, I would say, when it comes to the company's future, even. Sometimes it's a mess, I would say. Yeah. I, I I see companies huge companies where it's working really really well but that's when you have a ceo who actually understands and are willing to pay attention to how valuable it is to actually consider each and every individual in a really good way i mean water is always pouring downwards right and if you misbehave up here you're going to get a lousy leadership down there that's just the way it is in my own personal opinion i would say you have 10 percent excellent leaders top-notch leaders in really, really good position. They are self-aware. They are willing to learn. It's possible to give them feedback. They develop themselves. They develop their staff. They are always there. They pay attention. They are really, really good. I'm not talking about business. I'm talking about leadership as in dealing with people, you know, human beings. And then you have, I would say, 70% kind of average. Then you have 20% who are so bad they should be kicked out Immediately, they are so bad, they are only messing things up and making things worse. They should never have gotten the position in the first place, two out of 10, at least.
1: Final question, asking for a raise, the jeopardy for people in in their jobs. And again, I say this as a self-employed person, so I don't experience this, but the jeopardy of being like, I would like a raise, I feel I deserve a raise, between either getting the raise or not getting it at all, Or possibly the worry that, oh, they just think I'm wanting too much and I'm greedy. It's a really difficult area.
2: What you should do is you go to your closest manager and then you tell him or her, what do I need to do to get a raise? If you have a good conversation, well, they will tell you. You have to do this. You have to achieve that. You have to take uh, on this uh, training. You know, you have to educate yourself. You have to work really hard. You have to take extra hours. You have to solve three or four complicated projects, blah, blah, blah. Then we can give you, okay, so how much will I have if I complete all these things within X months? We we'll give you 10%. Okay, shaking hands on that one. There's always a risk they're going to lie to you. There's always a risk when uh, the time has come, there's another manager there because somebody left. There's always a risk. You can never be sure about anything 100%. But if you do it properly, then you can negotiate beforehand so you know that when you actually enter the room within a year and you just put the list on table 100 percent deliverance bam there it is then they have to lie to your face and say i never heard about that i don't know what you're talking about no no they have to look straight in the eyes and actually be a complete idiot and that's hard for people to do usually people are not that immoral but you have negotiated beforehand they might say you did so well you're going to get 15
1: percent I mean, really, I could talk to you all day. I feel like we've just scratched the surface. Thomas, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. I hope we get to speak again very soon. Thank you.
2: Thanks for the invitation. My pleasure. Hold
0: up.
3: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: Thomas Erickson, very interesting guy. I liked him a lot. He knows what he's talking about. Um, and I learned a lot as well. As ever, get in touch. I will give out the contact details at the end. Next up is Tracy Shores. She is a neuroscientist and a distinguished professor at Rutgers University. We touch on trauma, um, but we are doing a special episode of this at the end of the series. But mostly we discuss rumination, how to do it less and how to learn more about your own thoughts. Tracy has the most wonderful concrete floor and quite a stunning animal print chair, if I may say so myself. I start off by asking her how she came to write her book, Everyday Trauma.
3: Well I'm very interested in stress and how stress affects the brain and how we remember stressful life experiences. So that's one thing I've studied for many years, really since the 1980s actually. (laughs) So I started looking at how stress affects the brain at a kind of cellular level and You know, I think that sometimes people don't maybe appreciate how much the brain responds to our everyday experiences. They think, oh, it has to be this big event or it has to be something really long or protracted or maybe happen in childhood. But, you know, in reality, our brain is, in this very moment, changing because of what we're talking about and what we're, you know, planning to do later and et cetera, et cetera. And so traumatic events, of course we tend to remember those or at least we feel like we remember those better because they they make an impact on us, right? We remember how we felt. Maybe we can even recreate the feelings. So one of the things that I'm interested in is how our the thoughts we're having like at this moment bring back memories of what happened to us, you know, yesterday, last year, this during this pandemic, whatever. And then how those memories bring up feelings in our body, and then how that whole cycle just keeps going and going. So the word everyday trauma, the reason why I, I kind of came up with that is because I feel like when people hear the word trauma, they think of a big event, you know, an earthquake or some kind of, you know, violent attack. Mm. But many events that people have that are traumatic are very protracted, you know, they go on day after day, like the pandemic, for example, you know, it's been going on for almost two years. and every day we're like what's going to happen you know is it going to come back is it gone is someone going to get sick that i know am i going to get sick you know so it's a it's kind of always traumatic some days are more traumatic than others but it's it's always traumatic and then there's other types of traumas that are like i said before kind of discreet they just happen all at once like an earthquake or a
1: A bomb, an attack.
3: Yeah, an attack, a violent attack, a rape. Car accident. Yeah, car accident, something like that. And those also, though, kind of live in your mind every day. You're thinking, oh, gosh, you know, why did that happen? Or how can I not, how can I stop thinking about it?
1: And your body, no?
3: And your body, yeah. Yeah. Because then the feelings come up, you have a thought, it brings back a memory, and then with the memory comes all these feelings.
1: It's interesting because I feel like trauma is from my side of the pond because in America, I feel like trauma has been much more talked about and kind of understood, you know, childhood trauma, what trauma is, big traumas, trauma that can be linked to attachment, trauma that can be linked to, you know, abandonment, all those kind of things. Whereas on this side of the pond, we've always thought trauma is just an attack or a car accident. But people are kind of coming around to the notion of what trauma is now. Do you can you give a definition of what trauma is?
3: Like no definition is gonna be sufficient. But one way to think about it is it's more than a stressor. You know, like if you you have something that's stressful, and it doesn't necessarily cause mm. maybe some lasting memory or some lasting effect that, that you could recreate in your body. So I think it's like um, it's like on a continuum. Mm. You know, everyone has trauma. Now, not everyone you know, suffers with post-traumatic stress disorder, for example, because that's a very kind of distinct disorder. And it has certain criteria. You really have to have like X, Y, and Z symptoms to have that diagnosis. And, and I think that's important because we don't want to just say, oh, everyone has PTSD, because that's definitely not true yeah um, you know a lot of people have traumatic experiences and, and they're able to function you know fairly well in their everyday lives and what's
1: our brain doing with these let's say everyday traumas like what, what happens in our bodies
3: a lot <laughs> you know I mean that's the thing that's you know it's, it would be like books and books and books really if you were going to describe everything that happens during trauma and then you know after trauma and and there are Many, many books on this topic. That's also what made it kind of difficult to write this book is to figure out, like, well, yeah. what do I really want, you know, what do I really want to focus in on? But what I ended up kind of focusing on are uh, ruminations. And so ruminations are thoughts that we have over and over again. In fact, to ruminate means to chew, like a cow chewing their cud over and over after all the nutrients are gone and they just keep chewing it right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's like a ruminating thought because you have it and then you're like, you you learn from it, you know, that's why you have the thought to begin with and before you know it, oh, you're going through it again.
1: Like when the record stopped playing but it's just still going round. It's like a habit. The it's like a record. habit. Yeah. So what's driving that?
3: Well, there's a lot of theories about that. Some have suggested, um, there's a, a scientist in Hawaii, her name's Caroline Blanchard, and She has speculated that we ruminate to get information initially, that it's very adaptive, you know, the first few times around, because you're trying to decide, what am I going to do? Should I run? Should I stay and fight? Should I ignore it? Should I go to sleep? You know, there's all these decisions that have to be made kind of in a split second. And that's kind of how it starts. But then what happens over time is that, like I said, you've gotten all this information, and now maybe you're you're still trying to figure things out, but it's not really helping you. You know, one of the I think novel ideas that I have put forth in this book is that typically when people ruminate, they usually bring up a memory, some memory from the past. And it could be good or bad. They're, it's typically bad, right? Because ruminations are usually about ourself. They're usually negative. They're usually attached to like feelings of guilt or regret. So one thing we do know about the brain is like when you bring back a memory, so say I bring back a memory, good or bad from Mm. the past, that memory now gets attached to this moment in the brain. Yeah, right. So I bring back some memory from my childhood now I'm here in Jersey City. Now I have that memory kind of attached to this moment too. In our field, they would call that like memory updating or editing. But one problem I would say, or maybe one explanation for how ruminations become so destructive or can be destructive is that you're just making more of these memories. And and the oh. memories are in your brain. Like I think sometimes think of, people think of memories as kind of this you know, elusive thing that we don't know where it is. No, look, it's in your brain.
1: Yeah, it's downloaded, it's there.
3: It's there somewhere.
1: So when these ruminations are happening, let's say, as I heard you say, normally a negative thing, even perhaps a negative sense of oneself or memory from the past, it's happening, it's downloading again in real time. How can we prevent that?
3: Well, I mean, one idea is you just ruminate less. <laughs> yes,
1: yes, yes, I mean, yes. Would make. <laughs> Not it, I mean, easy. it would make sense,
3: wouldn't it? Yeah. But you know, and, and you know, you say that, you think, well, yeah, of course, you know, that makes sense. But you know, for a long time, at least in some circles, people didn't really necessarily think you could change that very much. That it was more like a trait.
1: So, oh, I'm just an over.
3: I'm just thinker, a or
1: I'm just a, I'm a ruminator. Yeah.
3: yeah. And that is to some extent true. There are certain, um, like women tend to ruminate more than men. Definitely people who are, are depressed ten, tend to ruminate more than people who aren't depressed. I mean, there are certain things that do go together. When you get older, the data suggests you don't ruminate as much. And that's one of the things I've become you know, really interested in is how can we ruminate less? You know, How can we learn more about our own thoughts so that, um, just, and, and part of it, there's some like magic. I think people often want a magic cure, or a magic pill, or a magic, you know, therapy. And even with me, like, because I've studied this now for quite a while, and ha- having focused on it so much the last few years, you know, I'm just more aware. I'm like, oh, I've been thinking that same thought. Like, how many times today? Yeah, <laughs> it's just not okay. It's such an
1: interesting thing to focus on. I think it's so fascinating because you know so much about the brain and the body, are there kind of hacks that we can do to aid ourselves?
3: Oh yeah, one of the things I've been doing over the last 10 or 15 years is is developing this uh, intervention. I call it MAP training. It stands for mental and physical training. And it's a brain fitness program, that's what I call it. It's not a therapy. It's meant to be a part of your life, right? It's meant to be something you could do not necessarily every day, but, you know, enough so that you kind of keep your brain fit Mm. Mm -hmm. for trauma and things that are going to happen. And this particular program, for reasons I do not fully understand, and I certainly didn't plan it, helps with rumination a lot. And it's not even that hard to do. Well, I mean, I don't want to say it's not hard to do, because this is another thing I think that's a little bit of a, problem is that people do want like want a quick fix, something easy that will make them not necessarily happy, but you know, content or not ruminate or not sad. And you know, most things that you do in life that really are useful require some yeah. effort. Definitely, you know, I did a lot of research on the on this in the brain and how the brain responds to what I call effortful learning, meaning learning that is is challenging, um, that requires attention, even at an anatomical level, right? We know that the harder you work at something, the more it's going to change the brain. So this, this program that I have is a combination of meditation, sitting straight up, meditating in silence, counting your breath, Oh, I like it. It's hard. hardcore. So the first half of the program is, is this kind of meditation and then it's followed immediately by aerobic exercise, meaning getting the heart rate up pretty high, really like going for it. Not, it's a ridiculous, you know, people could do it, but you have to put some effort. It's not taking us- I'm hoping it's
1: some street. sort of eighties aerobic thing. I mean, I'm, that would be my ideal.
3: It is a little bit of an eighties cause you know, that was me. <laughs> that you can do it anyway you could run you could spin you could anything to get your heart rate up and you know the idea is that you're training your brain in this very kind of difficult way focused way which is uncomfortable sometimes Mm -hmm. most times right but you're learning still you're learning about your own mind and your own thoughts and then right after you're just flooding the brain with a bunch of oxygen.
1: And what does that do?
3: All this oxygen is going all over your body, mostly to your brain, you know, and then that's, at least this is my theory about this, is that that's kind of helping kind of consolidate the learning. Yeah.
1: And what other things in the book do you talk about in terms of how to aid in the ruminations and things like that?
3: I hope that it's clear that even this, Program that I have has a lot of commonalities with other therapies and practices that people have engaged in for thousands of years, right? I mean, you could go back and there's like all these examples of practices that were used primarily in meditation, you know, med- various meditation practices that are very similar to some of the things that we use now in, in therapy. Replacing thoughts, right? Taking one thought, replacing it with another thought exposing yourself to thoughts right exposure therapy where you're exposing yourself to the trauma so that you can become less afraid Mm -hmm. of the memory. You know, that's another skill or another practice where you can learn the skill of Oh, now, you know, yeah, this really bad thing happened long ago, but now it's happened. I've been exposed to the to the stimuli that normally elicit this fear response. So many times and nothing bad happened that I I don't need to be afraid. You know, a simple example, I had a, like a back injury some time ago and I had to go to physical therapy earlier today. And the therapist was kind of manipulating right around my sciatic nerve, which I had injured, you know, long ago. And she was like, you're very tight. And she says, you know, it's just cause you, and I don't have it anymore. I don't have sciatic anymore. But she's like, you have protected yourself so for so long, for so many years, that if someone just touches it, you're just mm. kind of like, <laughs> so that you need to learn that it's okay. Like the pain yeah. isn't there, you know, you can yeah. relax. Yeah. And that's a, a body learning. So you can imagine how, you know, how much harder or not, maybe not as hard, at least to learn something mental, to, to really learn like, oh, now I don't like that yeah. memory. Like, it's so terrifying to even visit yeah. it again. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, it takes, well, like you said, it takes persistence, hard work. No, it's really interesting. I hope we get to speak again.
3: I'm honored, seriously.
1: Tracy Shores, she's a friend for life. Really, really enjoyed her. Yeah, so many different, very cool people coming from different points of view and with different expertise, areas of expertise. Well, we have time for a few quick messages. Thank you for getting in touch and do continue to get in touch because I do love hearing from you about anything you've heard on any of the episodes. Hello, podcast team. Hello. I'm absolutely loving the podcast so far. Every topic you've picked so far has really resonated with me and each week I've realised things about myself and my personality that I had never even thought about before. Wow. Last week when you discussed how different people navigate relationships, Amy Chan, wasn't she brilliant? Um, The details she went into were so beautiful and I could have listened to an entire series of the two of you chatting away while I'd like her to come back. I recently split up with my partner of five years and this is actually my first proper heartbreak in life. Being alone and without someone to love really brings such an overwhelming feeling of loneliness. And when I heard Amy reminding us that heartbreak happens to all of us, it struck such a chord that I know there are people all over the world in exactly the same situation as me. I know I can get through this and I will come out the other end stronger and more powerful than even I was before. Thank you for all your work on this podcast. Can't wait to hear everything next week. Thank you. Thank you very much for getting in touch. This is via Facebook. Hi, Will. I really enjoyed the podcast regarding addiction to shopping. I see it all the time, but people don't see it as an addiction like other addictions. It's great that you have highlighted it and I look forward to the next episode. Thank you. Hi, Will. Just wanted to say I found last week's episode really interesting. I've been thinking about the subject of somatic therapy for a while, so thank you for talking about it. Well done again. A very worthwhile interview. Somatic therapy, very, very good. And last one. Hey, Will, I had to leave my last job because of the toxic atmosphere amongst the team. I felt constantly bullied and let down by my boss and people close to him. I've just started a... Well done for leaving, by the way. I've just started a brand new job and I absolutely love it. The people I work with now really take pride about making sure everyone is cared for and it's changed my life for the better in so many ways would love to know if this was something you have ever struggled with in the music industry um not really I mean homophobia yes but I mean I think I was quite lucky because I'm my my own boss but that's why I wanted to um do workplace relationships because I think well you know I speak to a lot of my friends and they're not their own bosses so I thought it'd be a really interesting one and it is Thank you very much for getting in touch, everybody. Please do continue with any thoughts, anything at all. I mean, maybe not like recipes that you'd... I mean, maybe. <laughs> Why not? Throw it all in there. I don't mind. Um, to get in touch, as ever, it's at the Wellbeing Lab podcast on Insta and Facebook, on Twitter, at the Wellbeing Lab, and for email, hello at wellbeinglabpodcast.com. Come uh, next week is a sex special. I know it's like when Holly Oaks went red light. It's sex addiction and loss of sex drive. Very important one people don't talk about it. Do tune in. Until then, love you lots. Bye. Did you know the Wellbeing Lab is produced by Audio AF and is part of the Acast Creator Network? It's true.